Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. We would like to thank our advertisers for this podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Dr. Kirk Elliott, Ph.D., if you're looking for wealth management solutions and financial advice, go to KirkElliottPhD.com and make an appointment today. Good afternoon. This is Brandon Gill. I'm Dinesh's son-in-law, filling in one last time this week before Dinesh comes back on Monday. If you're a regular listener to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast, you've probably heard from me before. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of an America First news outlet called DC Inquirer, which I highly encourage you to check out. We have breaking news you won't want to miss. Our articles are often shared on social media by our favorite president, Donald Trump. And you can also sign up for email updates on our website. Again, that's dcinquirewithane.com. Check us out there. You can find me on social media. I'm at Brandon Gill on Truth Social. I'm at Real Brandon Gill on Twitter. And you can find me on Facebook and Instagram as well. So check me out there. And make sure, most importantly, that you subscribe and watch the new movie, Police State. We've been talking about it all week. We've been working really hard on it. And in my honest opinion, Police State is Dinesh's best film yet. It's definitely the most chilling. So make sure you find that. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to be discussing the police state and what it's doing at our border, how it's destroying our country and bringing in a new class of voters to do things that the Native American population wouldn't agree with. And then we have former FBI agent Kyle Serafin joining us. He's going to discuss the deep state, what uh, he's going to discuss his time at the FBI and what we can do to stop it. So let's get started. Times are crazy and a time of confusion, division, and lies. We need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. Mike Lindell just keeps on introducing great deals. He's featuring the all-new My Towels. Save 50% on the six-piece towel set. The regular price is $59.96. But now, for a limited time, it's only $29.98 with promo code Dinesh. Dinesh and Debbie have Mike's My Towels all over their house, and they love them for themselves. But we also love to get them as Christmas presents. My Towels six-piece set includes two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths. And I have to say, these towels are amazing. The long staple length of Sherpa cotton fibers makes them very soft because of the long fibers. They can wrap around each other more easily, creating a smoother and softer fabric, soft to the touch without the lotion feel and super absorbent. So take advantage of the 50% off on the six-piece towel set. Call 1-800-876-0227 or go to MyPillow.com. 
Again, that's 1-800-876-0227 or go to MyPillow.com and don't forget to use promo code Dinesh. That's D-I-N-E-S-H, Dinesh. For the past 200 years, being an American citizen meant something. It set you apart from non-Americans. That's why American citizenship has been so coveted around the world. It's why you have to protect your passport when you travel abroad. Having an American passport was valuable, and it still is, just less so. Citizenship means you have a place in this country. It's a formal recognition that America is your home, a place you have a lasting stake in, a place that presumably not only you enjoy, but one of your children or your grandchildren will inherit and enjoy as well. American citizenship confers upon its holders responsibilities, certain civic duties. For one, one of the biggest is we pay taxes for our government. We pay for its administration and the services it allegedly provides. When called, we have an obligation to serve in our court system on juries. In past generations, even some alive today have been obligated, been drafted to serve their country in the military, to potentially die for this country. That's a sacrifice thousands of Americans have made. And it's part of the responsibility of being an American citizen. And those responsibilities of citizenship also come with certain privileges that we get to enjoy. We expect our government to keep our communities safe, to keep our streets clean, to protect us from hostile foreign forces abroad, to provide us with basic social services and to defend our nation's cultural political and economic sovereignty. And while government certainly does not grant us rights in America, it certainly does secure them, or at least it's supposed to. It's supposed to secure our right to free speech, our right to bear arms, our right to fair trials and a just justice system. It's supposed to secure our our right to vote in fair elections, among many other things. But even more fundamentally, our government's job is to represent the interests of the citizenry whose sacrifices and responsibilities keep it and our society intact. It's a social contract. And when combined with a rigorous electoral process, it derives legitimacy from its citizens. No matter which party is in power, the ruling regime requires legitimacy to function properly and efficiently. But what happens when our government stops upholding its end of the bargain, when it stops ensuring our communities are safe, when it allows criminality to flourish or actively rewards lawbreakers? What happens when it fails to provide basic social services or when its education program is so clearly an indoctrination system that even its supporters admit it openly? What happens when it routinely inflates our wages into worthlessness? When it regulates away your ability to make a living, to put food on the table, or when it negotiates trade deals that send your jobs overseas? What about when it colludes with corporate enterprises to censor Americans trying to exercise their constitutional right to free speech, when it chops away at our Second Amendment right to bear arms, or when the judicial system locks up the state's perceived enemies in show trials while allowing looters, rioters, and thugs to roam free on our streets? And what about when its bureaucracies expand beyond anything they were remotely intended to be? And what happens when it fails to ensure our elections are protected? If you've watched 2,000 Mules, you know a lot about that. And what happens when, while doing all of this, 
Our government taxes our income, taxes our property, taxes our purchases, and taxes our savings, to name just a few. Well, when that happens, the government risks losing democratic legitimacy. It loses the consent of the governed. And for most of our history, that would mean the people running the government would be voted out of office. We have elections every two to four years, and they would be gone. But the police state found some novel solutions. In 2020, it had the great gift of COVID that opened the door for all kinds of fraudulent activity. Again, take a look at 2,000 mules and you'll see what I mean. But voter fraud is risky and COVID won't be around forever, even if they want it to be. And besides, our government was playing the election rigging game long before 2020. Instead, the most effective and long-lasting tactic the left has for winning elections in the face of their obvious destruction is illegal immigration. And we have to be honest, flooding America with a new class of voters with the obvious intention of diluting the electoral power of the native population is, in fact, a form of election rigging. Because if you're a Democrat, why risk the current electorate voting you out of office when you can import a new electorate that will overwhelmingly support you? And if you can grant this new electorate the privileges of American citizenship without their attendant costs, all the better. That's a recipe for victory for you. And that's a, that's a constituency that will vote for you for life. And right now, that constituency is growing by the millions every single year. Open borders do just that. They import a population who will likely vote Democrat forever. Democrats know that, but it seems like a lot of Republicans in elected office don't. That's why several Democrat cities over the past few years have pushed to allow non-citizens to vote. In Washington, D.C., non-citizens will be able to vote in municipal elections starting next year. We've seen similar moves in Vermont and Maryland. And in San Francisco, since 2016, non-citizens have been able to, have been allowed, excuse me, to vote in school board elections. And they're pushing it more and more in other cities as well. And the next push, you and I both know, will be for illegal aliens to vote in federal elections. They'll do that as soon as they think that they have the ability to. And that'll include presidential elections. If you can vote for school board president, why not also vote for the American president? That's the goal. And we know immigrants overwhelmingly vote Democrat by at least a two-to-one margin, and some estimates have the Democrat voting edge amongst immigrants much, much higher. And when presidential elections come down to a few thousand votes in a few key counties, that's more than enough to rig an election. And the longer-term picture is even more dire, because remember, right now, at least for now, it's not the illegals themselves who will be able to vote, but their kids and their grandkids, the, one born in Amer- the ones born in America, will. And these are the kids who are bombarded incessantly with left-wing propaganda telling them they're victims of racist Republicans, of an institutional system in America that oppresses them. These are the kids who will attend government schools that operate as virtual indoctrination camps. Kids who spend their free time scrolling through liberal victimhood propaganda on TikTok all day. Not only will many of these kids grow up to vote Democrat, they'll grow up to be Democrat activists, left-wing ideologues. These are the people the liberal cultural machine preys upon every single day, and we see it all the time. 
So things like amnesty, increased immigration, both legal and illegal, open border and open borders almost exclusively benefit Democrats and by extension, the burgeoning Democrat-controlled police state. That's why our borders are open. We have the ability to secure our border. We just don't. And it's not just me that says this. Democrats may call anybody who questions their open border policies racist for believing they're displacing America's native population. But at the same time, they gloat about how liberal new immigrants are. Whites are becoming a minority, they gleefully tell us, in demographics or destiny. In other words, the voting power of the people born here is being diluted by massive influxes of foreigners. And if you so much as, as acknowledge what they brag about doing, you'll be censored and slandered. It's the ultimate power flex. If that sounds malicious, that's because it is. Ask yourself, if the citizens of an African nation, let's say Uganda, if Ugandan citizens were upset about being displaced by a massive influx of millions of migrants from a neighboring nation that didn't speak their language and didn't uphold their customs, would we call Ugandans racist? Of course not. Or would they say that they were, they were voicing a legitimate concern? That is a legitimate concern, and it's a legitimate concern here, too. Our entire civilization is in the process of being overturned. This is a cultural, demographic, and political revolution that's happening right before our eyes. And like past revolutions, there are winners and there are losers. And the Democrat police state knows where to find its allies. Big businesses love cheap, easily exploitable labor. People who come across the border won't just work for wages far below what American workers require. But they'll work without the same protections American workers demand. Sweatshop hours, no problem. Dangerous work, that's not an issue. They'll do it. And they're particularly vulnerable because they have no recourse when put in unacceptably dangerous positions. Why run the risk, however remote, of potential deportation? The moral veneer that big business puts around their open borders advocacy is just that. It's a veneer. It's hollow and masks a far more insidious, self-interested motivation. The best way to exploit a population is with a clean conscience. The effect is to create a class of cheap labor that includes not only illegal aliens, but large portions of the American working class whose wages are collapsing. The American working class can't sustain the standard of living it's enjoyed for the past few decades while their wealth is being siphoned off by illegals. That's one of the big, big reasons wages have stagnated or fallen for so many Americans over the past several decades. It's a new serfdom, a class of people whose cheap labor can fund the lifestyles of the elite. It's a great deal for them. It's heaven for big business and the Democrat elite, but hell for the American worker who pays the price. And it's hell for all Americans who don't live in isolated, gated communities like most of our elites do. And that's because open borders create lawlessness, which creates a power vacuum, which is filled by people who don't care about you or me or your interests or mine. These are bad people. Leftists threw a fit when President Trump correctly pointed out that they're bringing their drugs, crime, murderers, and rapists, but that's exactly what they're doing. And it's not just on the border anymore. Every town now is a border town. It's transforming American life across the entire country. A recent report out earlier this year by the CDC demonstrates exactly that. 
It's fascinating and horrifying. It asks what the number one cause of death is for different age groups in America. It compared the cause 20 years ago to today, and it broke the data out by state. The results, like I said, are absolutely horrifying. Between 2001 and 2002, only about 20 years ago, the leading cause of death for Americans aged 1 to 17, so minors, children, was traffic accidents. That was true in all 50 states, no exceptions, and it makes sense. That's the kind of thing one might expect in the first world. Maybe it indicates the need for a better car safety or something or drivers or something similar. I don't know. But a statistic like that is what one might expect in a wealthy society like ours. But it asks the same question for today. What's the leading cause of death for minors in America now? Well, today in 11 states, including D.C., the leading cause of death for our children is either homicide or suicide. That's the new world American children are inheriting. So when you're concerned about the kind of media your kids consume, the places your kids hang out, the people they meet, you're not being a helicopter parent or being overbearing. You're being realistic about the fact that the America of past generations, the ones where kids played outside alone, unsupervised, where they could rely on adults, even occasionally strangers to help them when they needed it, that America doesn't exist anymore. But there's a lot more to the CDC's data as well. In 2001 to 2002, what was the leading cause of death for Americans between the ages of 18 and 44? 20 years ago, the leading cause of death also was transport accidents in 30 states. In 19 states, it was either cancer or major cardiovascular disease. Again, that's not good. Maybe we should be more healthy, but it makes some sense. But what about now? And this is where it gets the most disturbing. Now, the number one cause of death for Americans aged 18 to 44 in 28 states, which is over half the union, the number one cause of death for adults aged 18 to 44 years old is overdose from fentanyl and other synthetic drugs. In 14 states, the number one cause of death for that age group is suicide. And where does fentanyl come from? After being made in China, it pours across our wide open southern border. Everybody knows that. And it's destroying our communities and slaughtering our people. And it's difficult to comprehend how deeply and fundamentally wrong this is. It's also difficult to comprehend how sick a society is where the leading cause of death for its inhabitants is people killing themselves. It's socially sick, spiritually sick. It's sad. But that's what's happening, and maybe it has something to do with the America the left is transforming us into. Maybe that's what happens when American citizens have their birthright stripped from them, when the land of opportunity and safety and prosperity they were promised is taken away, when instead they're handed decaying communities where jobs and opportunity are replaced with opioids and crime. We can't pretend like this is socially normal, but at the same time, we have to recognize that our current social state is intentional. The Democrat Party thrives on chaos and lawlessness because chaos and lawlessness create the perceived need for big government. The lack of opportunity combined with the ravages of widespread opioid addiction create a dependency. Where once self-reliant people could provide for themselves, that self-reliance is now replaced by government reliance. 
Small governments rely on a population that can provide for itself economically, that's spiritually and socially healthy, a population that can govern its own behavior largely without the state. The left-wing big government police state thrives on the opposite, hopelessness, decay, destruction. So it's the perfect plan. Import new voters, lead the current voters to ruin, reap the electoral rewards, and in the end, American citizens, those of us who are supposed to have inherited a land of freedom and opportunity, wake up in a new nation, strangers in a strange land. Dinesh and Debbie are on a great health journey, but they still struggle to eat enough fruits, vegetables, and fiber. Lucky for them, they discovered balance of nature, and what better way to get all your fruits and vegetables plus fiber than with balance of nature. Balance of nature, fruits and veggies are made from fresh, whole produce. Their produce is powdered after an advanced vacuum cold process, which stabilizes the maximum nutrition content. And their balance of nature, fiber and spice is a proprietary blend of fiber and 12 spices for overall and digestive health. So like Dinesh and Debbie have, start your journey to better health right now. Call 1-800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com to get 35% off your first preferred order by using discount code AMERICA. Again, that's balanceofnature.com. Or call 1-800-246-8751 and get 35% off your first preferred order by using discount code AMERICA. During times of economic uncertainty and political upheaval, it's crucial to have a reliable source of financial guidance and insight. That's where Dr. Kirk Elliott, Ph.D., and his esteemed wealth management advisory firm come into play. Dr. Kirk Elliott has distinguished himself with two PhDs in economics and theology, has built a reputation in expert financial solutions tailored to your needs. His firm specializes in wealth management, offering a comprehensive array of services to protect and grow your assets in an ever-changing world. In an environment filled with economic volatility and shifting political landscapes, finding a trusted partner during these challenges is essential. Dr. Elliott's firm employs cutting-edge strategies and and an understanding of the markets to guide you towards financial success. Go to kirkelliottphd.com slash Dinesh and book an appointment, and they will explain their process about investing. Again, that's kirkelliottphd.com slash Dinesh. Elliott with two L's and two T's, or call or text 720-605-605. Three nine zero zero. Welcome back to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast. I'm Brandon Gill filling in for Dinesh this week. We've got a special guest here in uh, here with us. We've been talking about the police state, and we have somebody who's been uh, a part of it. Kyle Serafin is a former FBI agent. Kyle, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's good to see you again, Brandon. Kyle, tell us about your time in the FBI and why you eventually left. So I'm kind of an unlikely federal agent in a lot of ways. I I joined at 35. People always meet me and they go, you're not what I expected when I meet somebody from the FBI. And I always joke back and I always tell them, yeah, it's because they're a bunch of nerds. (laughs) And and, and I kind of had that attitude going through. I'm a little bit irreverent. I'm kind of a little bit off color for for a lot of people with the federal things. Most people think feds look more like your dress. The kind of feds that I hung out with look like me. We did surveillance. We did kind of street level work. I wanted to deal with crime and I got assigned to something that was very different than that. 
So I went in at 35 years old. I went to the academy right away. It wasn't what I expected it to be. I expected it to be elite. I expected it to be very difficult. I expected it to be paramilitary when I went through the academies. And it's really a gentleman's course. It's really gentle. There's a lot of people there that are pretty bright, but there's some a pretty strong quotient of increasing diversity hires, which are people that are just hired for the way they looked as opposed to what they uh, what they actually are. And then there's some really good backgrounds on paper that don't meet the road. There's some people who have backgrounds that don't seem like they would be so elite and they're the best agents, I think. So it's kind of an interesting organization. I think a lot of people have a misconception about it. And I got thrown directly into what I think that most people don't know exists in the FBI, which is the intelligence side of the coin. So I started working Chinese counterintelligence in Washington, D.C. in 2017, in 2018. And uh, when I sat down with my boss after probably my, my one year mark, she said, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? And I said, I see myself on another squad doing a different kind of work in the next six to eight months, or I'm going to be resigning because I can't do this kind of work. And the reason why is because I was doing FISA 702. I was doing a lot of intelligence work. And when you do intelligence organization or intelligence agency investigations, they're not based on criminal predicates. Most people have no understanding of what that looks like. In other words, I could have an investigation into you and there's no criminal allegation at all. And that doesn't jive with most people's instinct of what the FBI is about. They think that it's a criminal investigation organization and they maybe do some intelligence about that. They're really primarily an intelligence agency, but they have the capabilities of arresting you. And so that is what a secret police looks like. That's how you get a police state. It's when you have people that are doing spying on the domestic citizens and then they also have powers to arrest. Wow. Uh, it's fascinating. And, and you were there for, for six years, right? And then you left. Tell us, tell us why you eventually left. <laughs> it wasn't really my choice. So <laughs> I, I was doing anything I could to get out of Washington, D.C. I put in for a couple of transfers. I tried to go work on an Indian reservation in Montana, and I was like this far away from it. I think one person in front of me got the job. And uh, they did it based on seniority. We were from the same class, but this gal got the job because she had put her name on the list a few months earlier than me. So that was a shame. I ended up getting a transfer out to Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is in the United States, although many people don't even know that. And I worked in a small office that had 16 total employees, I think, something like that. They were about uh, 12 or 13 FBI agents there, including the supervisors. And I got assigned to work on the Mescalero Apache Reservation, which was kind of a dream come true. I got to work 100 miles away from my house. I, I lived in this beautiful you know, custom home. And we were living on two acres next to the mountains in the middle of nowhere. And it was great. It was a really good gig. And right about the time that I thought everything was going well and I'd escaped the politics of DC, Joe Biden released an executive order, which was 14043 for those who are federal employees saying that all federal employees had to get the COVID-19 vaccination shots. Mm -hmm. And I was a religious objector to that. I'd had COVID in 2020. I'm a pro-life Catholic. So it was a pretty straightforward, no thank you for me. I put in the uh, exemption request. And then within a few days of that, I got an email from one of my supervisors who didn't have to send it to me, but happened to forward on this email that said the FBI was going to be going after parents at school board meetings. And many people are familiar with that story now because that mm -hmm. went pretty national and pretty viral. And uh, interestingly enough, my allegation was not that the FBI cannot investigate parents who are making threats at school board meetings. My allegation was that the attorney general of the United States engaged in perjury because he said they wouldn't use counterterrorism resources. And the mm -hmm. email came from Carlton Peoples, who was the assistant director of counterterrorism at the time. So I made a credible allegation. That I thought the AG was lying to the American people in front of Congress. And that's pretty much how you end your federal career. <laughs> I, got, uh, I got kicked out of the office on November 23rd of 2021. I was told not to come back in because I refused to take COVID tests every 72 hours. I thought that was crazy. Mm -hmm. um, I was a, a paramedic for over a decade, right? And I've been a, a, I had a top secret clearance for the last six years. And it's like, if you can't trust me to stay home with the sniffles, then you can't trust me at all. They ended up agreeing with me and they ended up taking my security clearance a little while later. 
But uh, I actually did get to go back in the office in 2022 for about six weeks. And illogically, the FBI declared me an internal threat. Mm. And so they said, because I was a potential internal threat, they moved me to the most sensitive investigation squad, the National Security Squad, instead of working on an Indian reservation, which basically made you like a local detective. (laughs) So I went out and ended up on this National Security Squad. And on April 18th, they came in, they sat me down uh, in the boardroom, took my badge, took my gun, took my car keys, took my body armor, kicked me out of the office pretty much permanently. I was never back in the FBI after that. And then for a year, I was on unpaid suspension. So I didn't get paid for a year, but they considered me an employee. And then I had to, quote unquote, resign, uh, even though I hadn't been paid for the job for over a year. And I was told I couldn't call myself an FBI employee. And I did that in April of this year. So it's been kind of a wild ride. You you definitely get to see what sort of organization you work for when Hmm. you uh, see what happens when you report wrongdoing. Right. I mean, it's utterly disgraceful. How how does this work? You mentioned earlier that you guys would be monitoring different people, whether there was a criminal allegation against them or not. You mentioned that there was a a directive telling you to go after um, school board members or parents who are protesting school board members. It's so foreign, I think, to a lot of Americans to think that the FBI, who's supposed to be looking out for us, is doing this to American citizens. Where do, where do directives like this come from? Or in other words, how do you decide who you're going to, to sort of target for surveillance? So it's a pretty astute question. It actually gets to the root of the problem with the Bureau right now, which is that it's intelligence driven, as I kind of mentioned, but it's also run, uh, sort of run by statistics. Mm-hmm. And these statistics are kind of a cherry picked way of looking at the way the world is. Um, when you are an intelligence agency, you deal with things that are called threats. Threats are not necessarily crimes. And those are almost always going to end up being sort of a political bias towards them because there's an opportunity cost for going after certain threats versus other threats. If you're going to target white supremacists, which we'll know as racially motivated violent extremists, then you're going to have maybe some other people that you can't credit because there is just that opportunity cost. You're not going to go after, let's say, black, um, you know, black identity politic uh, extremists and things like that. Mm -hmm. So they tend to go after people on the political right. That's kind of where the money is. And the reason to me seems to be that there's this ideological capture in all the intelligence agencies, but definitely in the FBI, where they've been hiring more and more people with longer and longer amounts of time in university. Those Mm -hmm. people tend to be more and more politically left. And so they are sort of inclined to believe that the political right is, in fact, the threat when maybe there's both and maybe there's neither. But there's an awful lot of money in going after these sort of like domestic terror threats. And if you'll permit me, I'll kind of walk people through it mentally so they can yeah, understand. For sure. Because people people think that the FBI would be going after terrorist threats, which is actually, mm-hmm. in theory, not a bad thing. Um, but what we did, and I think that uh, the police state movie kind of illustrates this is on September 12th of 2001, the United States accepted a new definition of national security. It went from protect and defend the Constitution. That means some people will die, you know, all threats, foreign and domestic. And so there's some cost, but there is also some risk associated with doing that because the Constitution allows us to have constitutional freedoms. Um, it, you know, it, it keeps government out of our business. On 9-11, we sort of learned a little lesson and, and all the government sort of came forward and said, we must not have any more Americans die from terrorists. So zero terrorists will die on U.S. soil from terrorism. I'm sorry, U- uh, zero U.S. citizens will die from terrorists. And once you have that, like that's a tyrannical mandate. Right. It's the same thing as saying zero people will die from COVID. That's how people get welded in their houses in China. Mm. And, and, and it takes a long time for that sort of thing to grow. That seed was planted probably September 12th of t- uh, 2001. It went under Director Mueller. And then it just moved forward and forward to the point where, you know, 
you cannot allow any terrorism to exist. We started off with looking at what's called IT or international terrorism. That's your jihadis. That's your, you know, ISIS and your Al-Qaeda's and your Al-Shabaab's and so on. And then it moves towards what they call homegrown violent extremists. These are people that believe in those ideologies, but they're from the United States or they're naturalized citizens here. And once you're looking at people that are inside the United States, it's very easy for you to go, well, who else in this house is a problem? Oh, how about these white supremacists? How about these uh, radical Catholics? How about these you know, abortion protesters? And so then they move into this sort of what they call domestic violent extremist realm. And it's a really straight line. It's international terrorism, homegrown violent extremists, which bridges the gap. And then you end up looking at people that are like you and me, and they're like, oh, you're, you're a pro-life Christian, or you're somebody who uh, has uh, conservative views, like you're also a problem. You're now in the threat landscape, as they call it. Mm-hmm. So you have a broad mandate to basically root out a problem entirely. Um, and there's a whole bunch of different areas where you might see this. Like you said, there's maybe a small group of white supremacists. I'm sure there's black supremacists. There's probably other potential areas where domestic terrorism could arise but what they do is they cherry pick certain areas to go after and not other areas and that in that you're saying is ideologically driven i think it's driven by the by the amount of money that there's that is funded hmm. so homeland security and the bureau will put together certain things so you think doj and uh, dhs will put out these sort of directives saying this is the biggest threat that we see and that threat is going to be tied to certain amounts of money that is going to come back to them, mm. right? They're going to be funded based on actually realizing that that threat is real. So if I tell you I'm going to open up 600 white supremacy cases and I only open 300, I've overestimated how big that threat is. And now Congress is going to readjust my budget. So I'm actually incentivized to open up that 600 cases that I predicted and where that number come from? It came from our head. We said, well, that's how big the threat is. Now we go out there and see and fight it. Rather than saying there are some threats, we will address them as they come up and we will report after the fact what they were. And you guys can you know, fact check our math. They're actually going after and they're saying, we think it's going to add up to 25. And then they're scrambling around to find 25 things that, that add up to that 25. And so it's mm-hmm. just a backwards way of doing it. They're actually perversely incentivized to increase statistics because that increases budget. And as everybody who knows uh, and works for the government, increasing your budget is success. If you have more budget and more manpower and more people and more time spent, then you are actually doing something wonderful instead of like a private business where you're trying to cut costs, you're trying to mm-hmm. cut headcount, you're trying to solve problems and never deal with them again. That's not what the government does. Well, it's funny because it reminds me of an episode of The Office where Michael Scott was telling every all, all of his employees that they need to make sure that they spend more money because if they don't, then their budget's going to get cut for the next year. It's it's kind of the exact same principle, just on a much much larger larger level, and with much more insidious consequences. Um, but when it, whenever you describe that, that sounds like an, a, a deeply rooted institutional issue. And I think one of the questions I have is: we know that the FBI does all kinds of things. Um, some good, some bad. How how deeply rooted are these problems actually? Is this something that's fundamental to the way the FBI works? Because that's kind of how it sounds. Or is there some, in other words, can the FBI be reformed or does this need to be uh, taken out or transformed altogether? Yeah, I think that's the $11 billion question <laughs> in many ways, right? So the American taxpayers pay, there's, there's two ways of looking at this. Uh, mm-hmm. Number one is the American taxpayers are paying about $11 billion for the, for the FBI. And so they have to decide if there was no FBI today, this is the, the way that I would look at it. Mm-hmm. If there was no FBI today, would you spend $11 billion on the FBI as it is today? Is that what you would spend your $11 billion on if you were operating in a vacuum? When we talk about playing things like playing, uh, playing cards, 
once you put money into the pot, it's the pot's money. So if you can look at it that way and you can dispassionately look at your cards and say, is this a good hand? Would I play it? That's how people should look at the FBI. Not that it exists, not that it's been there, not that there's 40,000 jobs that we would lose and this and that. Is it a good bargain for the American people? That's part one. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is this. Everybody thinks that maybe you could fix the management. Maybe you could get Chris Ray out of there. Maybe you change some of the seventh floor executives on the Hoover building. But those are not the people that are coming through the door of a Mark Hout, who's a pro-life activist and was, you know, targeted by the FBI for a civil rights violation and a face act violation and had a, you know, a team of 20 agents outside of his door at 6 a.m. That is not the way, you know, this is not executives kicking down those doors. These are mm-hmm. everyday guys like me and women like that, you know, at the same pay grade as me, GS-13s, frontline, what we call brick agents, who are doing the search warrants, who are doing the arrest warrants, who are carrying out these investigations, who are writing up the reports. So it's corrupted at a very, very low level, and it's corrupted for two reasons. Number one is the paycheck, and number two is the pension. We call mm-hmm. it the golden handcuffs. Once you get to 10 years, people will basically do everything to get to that 20-year mark if they're a federal agent. And uh, I've got friends like Dan Bongino who have talked about walking away from that sort of thing. It's a very difficult decision. And essentially, the Bureau did a loyalty test with that COVID mandate. I don't think that it was designed that way from the Biden administration per se, but it became a loyalty test. And it was like this. What are you willing to do to keep your pension, even if you disagree with what we're asking you to do? Mm And for me, there's like an indirect, but it's not a very difficult line to see. Uh, someone tells you to take a shot that you had no interest in getting, that you had the free will to go out and get if you wanted it, but you didn't. Mm-hmm. Then they tell you you must have it. Like from that line to some of the things that we saw during the Holocaust, for me, is a really, really straight line. They're getting compliance and buy-in because nothing started with death camps. None of these dangerous tyrannies started off with people saying, hey, go grab your neighbor and shoot them in the back of the head. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works. And that's not how a police state progresses. The way that it moves forward is they'll say – Go get all the names of all the people in that building. Mm-hmm. Now go back and take those names and find out which ones are Jews. Mm-hmm. Now make sure that all those Jews are wearing an armband because we need to know who they are. And now we're going to take all those people and for their safety and for our safety, we're going to move them into a centralized area. We're going to put them all in one little ghetto. And now we're going to move them from that ghetto because they got to actually work because they're not doing something that's helpful to the war effort. We're going to move them to these camps. Mm-hmm. And some of them aren't working hard enough. We're going to start killing them off. That's the progression that goes on. And that only happens when you have local and state and federal officials saying yes Instead of throwing the BS flag saying, hey, I'm not going to participate in this. You're identifying people. You're making them subhuman. You're, you're taking them outside of the population of friend, neighbor, colleague, et cetera. And you're othering them. That's, that's the word that the therapist would use. Mm-hmm. My wife is a mental health counselor. <laughs> so the others out there, once you've made them, it's us and them and they're the enemy. Then you can do anything you want to them. And they made a lot of people others, and they made a lot of people bend a knee that they otherwise wouldn't have. And I think that's how they got a lot of buy-in in there. You also see a lot of animosity mm-hmm. because the FBI is torn right now. There's probably 700-plus internal investigations looking for people who are like me that might do the thing I did but didn't do it as extremely as I did it or as quickly. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're actively calling through their staff to get rid of the people who either, to your point, aren't going to comply with some of the things that they're trying to push or who might even just be a threat. Um, to create to create an intelligence and secret police force that is going to do what ultimately the left wants or the police state wants. And they're, and they're recruiting more people that way. If you look at it, you know, they're repeat, recruiting people with lower and lower physical fitness standards, which either there is a standard or there's not. And either it's important or it's not. They're opening themselves up to some lawsuits because if you change the fit standard and let's say you tried out, you didn't make the fit standard. And then somebody a year later does the same thing on paper. You're actually better than them, but you met the fit standard that this person now met, which is lower, but they didn't offer you a job and they changed it arbitrarily. (laughs) You have a lawsuit there most likely. Mm -hmm. And so they've changed the fit standards to bring in more people. They're actively trying to go after certain minority groups. They're actively trying to get women involved. 
I mean, just objectively, the worst managers I've ever had in any job I've ever worked in, and I'm 41 years old, I'll be 42 in a little bit, in 40, you know, what is it, 20 plus years in the adult workforce, you know, the worst managers I've ever had worked for the FBI, and that mm. includes like the guy who ran the Baskin Robbins I worked at when I was 14 years old. <laughs> so if you go all the way back to my first job as a teenager, the worst, the absolute worst managers I had were female FBI agents that were in charge of things. And that's not a good look. I mean, it's not good for anybody, not for the American people, certainly not for people who work for the FBI. Mm -hmm. Well, it's fascinating to get kind of an inside look at this. I think a lot of people who listen or who watch this show are conservatives. Some of them are activists or involved in at least the local level, maybe on school boards or other things. And I know for myself, I always wonder what would I do if... I hear a knock at the door and it's an FBI agent. So what would you recommend, not legal advice, just practical advice, if one of our listeners has an FBI agent show up at their door to ask them questions or or just to talk for a little bit, what would you do? Talk through the door. Thank them for coming. That's it. There's no reason to talk to the FBI. Mm -hmm. There's no upside. And that's a sad thing to say because I think that there are some decent human beings that are my friends out there. Mm -hmm. um, and when you lose your reputation as an agency, and this is the danger that's gone on, when you lose that rep, people don't want to talk to you. One of the things that is incredible about being an FBI agent, having those credentials, having those three letters associated with your name, when you knock on the door, you're never just Kyle Serafin, a guy who works for the FBI. If, the, if I knock on your door and I'm an FBI agent, the first thing that happened, mom, the FBI's here. Hmm. The entire FBI is sitting on your shoulders and you're carrying the weight and the reputation of the entire agency, even though you're just one person. And... That entire agency right now is tarnished in a very, very strong way. 50% of the country is looking at them as an enemy. And so there's no upside to you talking to them. You're not going to straighten anything out. You might get hit with what's called a 1001 charge, which is under 18 USC 1001 false statements. So they could say, you say, oh, what time is it? You know, some arbitrary thing. You're just having a conversation trying to straighten something out. You may not have all your facts in order. Mm -hmm. They may hold that against you. And we've seen them do that on people like Michael Flynn. They can set up a perjury trap for you while they're talking because almost all FBI agents don't talk like you and I are talking right <laughs> off the cuff. They plan out an interview. I've been asked mm -hmm. what my interview plan was. And I'm like, I'm going to go talk to the guy and see what he says and then ask him questions based on what he tells me. And they're like, no, no, you need to have a map of where you want to get to. And for me, that's, that's antithetical to a real conversation. Mm -hmm. It's not the way that interviews are supposed to work. The real conversation is I ask you questions. You tell me answers. I ask you questions about those answers. Mm -hmm. That's how we do it. If I'm going there to get something specific, that's an interrogation. And I didn't plan interrogations for people that were witnesses. And I didn't plan interrogations for people that were not accused of crimes. That's weird. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that a lot of people think. So there's no upside to answering any questions at all. And you're going to be compelled to do that. Every single person knows that they shouldn't talk to the police. They shouldn't talk to you know the feds and they do it anyway. Mm -hmm. So the answer is hold your tongue, fight your human instinct to fill in a gap in silence. Let them be very uncomfortable because they're used to it. They're awkward. <laughs> There's just awkward people out there working for the bureau. When they knock on your door, hey, I'm with the FBI. It's like, thanks so much for coming. I'd like you to leave the property. And you and don't close have the to door. talk to them. Why would you? Yeah, mm -hmm. there's no, there's, you're not compelled to do that, either self-incrimination or otherwise. Right. You have the right to just not talk to people. Right. They're on your property. Thank them very much for coming and send them home. Mm -hmm. And they'll and they'll do their investigation. If they're going to come after you and kick the door down like they did to Mark out, then they will. And then you'll go and deal with that problem. That's a different animal. Mm -hmm. but there's no reason to help out because you're only going to cause problems for yourself at this point. What do you do in a situation like that? You wake up at six in the morning and there's 10 FBI agents outside your house and they're beating your door down. Yeah, you're going, you're going to jail if that's what it is. You're going to have your house searched if that's what's going to happen. You're going to end up in handcuffs. So your best bet is not grabbing a weapon system and getting involved. Give them no reason. 
Um, we've seen, you know, there was a period in 10 days where the FBI killed three or four people on search warrants, some of whom were, you know, I'm sure they're all going to be considered justified, but uh, there's no reason to engage in force against that. You're now going to be dealing with something very, very different. You're going to be dealing with what, uh, you know, Dinesh dealt with, which is the, uh, it's the, it's the legal system and the justice system such that it is. And, uh, and unfortunately it's very, very imperfect. And yet that's, what's going to be in front of you. You're better off not getting into an armed conflict with federal agents um history won't look kindly on you and moreover you know it's going to cause way more problems for you than anything else so i i don't recommend people resisting armed but don't help them either you know you can just Mm -hmm. put your hands up and let them know and and don't say anything you're Mm going to want to you may be in your boxer shorts it's awkward that's their problem they came in to see the show they get the show that's what it looks like and i've been on the end of it where you've taken people out and you know for some reason there's always somebody naked on a search warrant and you always got to figure like it's my job to cover you up it's not your job as the naked person you just deal with it that's your life well, that's fascinating. Kyle, thanks for joining us. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to, to kind of get a, a more of an inside look as to what's happening. So thanks for joining. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Dinesh and Debbie started taking Relief Factor two years ago, and the difference they've seen in their joints the past two years has been nothing short of amazing. Aches and pains are gone thanks to this 100% drug-free solution called Relief Factor. Relief Factor supports your body's fight against inflammation that's the source of aches and pains. More than 1 million people have tried Relief Factor, and about 70% have gone on to order more. Debbie's been able to do all the exercises that for several years she wasn't able to do. It's been a game changer for her, her aunt, other members of our family, and for many other people. You too can benefit. Try it for yourself by ordering the three-week quick start for the discounted price of only $19.95. Go to relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF to find out more about this offer. That's relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF. Feel the difference. Last month, the G20 announced that it welcomed discussion of the effects of implementing central bank digital currencies in their countries. These digital currencies could allow the government to track every purchase you make. They could even allow officials to prohibit you from purchasing certain products or easily freeze or seize part or all of your money. In essence, they could enable the government to take more control over your finances. Concerned Americans are diversifying their assets into physical gold with the help of Birch Gold Group. If you want a physical asset held in a tax-sheltered retirement account, you should call Birch Gold too. Dinesh and Debbie are customers. They buy their gold through Birch Gold. But find out for yourself. Text Dinesh to 989-898 and they'll send you a free info kit on gold. Here's the easiest way to become a Birch Gold customer. If you have an IRA or a 401k from a previous employer just gathering dust, Birch Gold can help you convert it into an IRA in gold and you don't have to pay a penny out of pocket. Text Dinesh to 989-898. Claim your free info kit on gold, then call them. Because if central bank digital currencies become a reality, it'll be nice to have some gold to fall back on. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to check out my website. It's DC Inquirer. That's DC Inquirer with an E, not an I. You can find all kinds of breaking news and commentary. You can sign up for our email list and you'll get all sorts of great stuff there. Check me out on social media. I'm at Real Brandon Gill on Twitter. I'm at Brandon Gill on Truth Social, and I'm also on Facebook and Instagram as well, so make sure to find me there. 
And thank you again for letting me host the show. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining. Thanks for being with me. And most importantly, if you haven't seen it yet, make sure you watch Police State. It's streaming on Rumble right now, and you can get it. Thank you. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com.